This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Many atrocities occurred against Native nations after white settlers arrived to the so-called New World. Through broken treaties, Indian removal acts, military action, and other means to force confinement of Indians onto reservations, many Native people died in attempts to defend their lands and way of life. What obligation does the U.S have towards the descendants of Native nations and people. Returning guest, Jeff Rasley has a perspective born out of his own family's history as well as U.S. history. Let me review Jeff's background again. Jeff Rasley is the author of 14 books and over 80 articles published in academic and mainstream periodicals, including Newsweek, Chicago Magazine, ABA Journal, Family Law Review, and Friends Journal. He has appeared as a featured guest on over 150 radio and podcast programs. Jeff is the president of the Bassa Village Foundation, secretary of the Scientech Foundation, board member of the Indianapolis Peace and Justice Center, a trustee of Earlham College, and co-founder of the Jeff and Alicia Raisley Internship Program for the ACLU of Indiana. Jeff is a graduate of the University of Chicago, BA Magna Cum Laude, Phi Beta Kappa, all academic, all state football team, and letter winner in swimming and football. Indiana University School of Law, JD Cum Laude, Moot Court, and Indiana Law Review, Christian Theological Seminary, a Master's of Divinity, Magna Cum Laude, co valedictorian and Faculty Award Scholar. He has been admitted to the Indiana U.S. District Court and U.S. Supreme Court bars. Jeff, welcome back to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. The last time you were here, we talked about your book, 72 Wisdoms, and today we're about to talk about a previous book, America's Existential Crisis, Our Inherited Obligation to Native Nations. So welcome back, Jeff. Thank you, Karen. It's good to be back with you again. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. I know that this book is personally important to you. So tell us a little bit about your own ancestors and your family history and why it was personally important for you to write this book about the Native American experience. I inherited a vest. It's a beautiful beaded deerskin vest, which I found in this big old trunk in the attic of our house when I was a kid. And I was fascinated with it. And my mom said, oh, well, you know, you can have it. And I didn't really know where it came from, why we had it, but hung in my closet for years. And after I was married and uh, my wife and I were picking out things from my parents' house to bring to our apartment in Chicago, uh, she saw this vest and thought it was so wonderful, wanted to know its history, and I didn't really know much about it. So we asked my grandmother, um, who was, I think, uh, just about 80 years old at that point, what she knew about it and why the family had it, and she told us this story of how her grandfather, who had the interesting name of Valentine Berkey, had been given this vest by Potawatomi Indians in northern Indiana because one uh, very harsh winter, he had helped the Potawatomi avoid starvation uh, he owned a lumber mill and a hardware store, and the 
Potawatomi, uh, and this was late 19th century, so 1860s through 1890s, when he was in the lumber and hardware business. The uh, Potawatomi that remained in northern Indiana had, were friends of his, customers of his, and so, but they mostly survived on either just sustainable agriculture, uh, hunting and fishing, trapping, and anyway, the, they gave him this vest because he allowed them credit, helped them survive the winter. So this was a token of their appreciation to him uh, for his help. So learned that story when I was in my early 20s, thought that was really cool. And then just a few years after that, my mom uh, was invited to West Point, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, because an ancestor of ours had graduated from West Point a hundred years before that. And West Point has this wonderful ceremony, a uh, centennial celebration for the families of alumni. And my mom was the only ancestor, the only survivor of, uh, of his family, whose name was Lieutenant Mann, that West Point can find. Invited her to West Point. She really didn't know anything about him learned about his military career, and she was a journalist and city editor of our local Goshen news newspaper. And so dug into it, discovered that he had been in the 7th U.S. Cavalry, spent his entire military career out in the Northwest Territory, and was at Wounded Knee, was actually shot the day after Wounded Knee in sort of a cleanup operation, running down Indians that had escaped, and died a couple weeks later from that wound, but in the meantime had given an interview to Harper's Weekly and wrote a long letter to his brother about his experience at Wounded Knee and his experience as a cavalryman. And so... I eventually thought this was a very interesting parallel of one ancestor who had this, you know, relationship with local Indians in his area that he was a friend of theirs and he was actually, you know, honored by them. And this other ancestor who had spent his military career confining Indians to reservations and fighting in the Indian Wars against them. And so eventually I made what I called a pilgrimage to the site of Wounded Knee, spent a day there and traveled through the reservations uh, in the Dakotas and led me to writing an article and then which was eventually turned into this book. So, very long answer to your question, but that's uh, how these two ancestors of mine led uh, into uh, writing this book. Well, your story is very interesting, and of course, in both of these relatives, you have sort of some opposites. One who's befriended the Native Nation people and was helpful, and then the other operating on behalf of the U.S. wasn't really committing crimes per se. He was in the military and he was doing the military operation. However, it was a military operation that was problematic for Native Nation people. So given that, that you've got both elements in your family and any of us, if we were to do any research, we would find mixed elements in our families as well of people on different sides of issues. What are your views about what happened to the Native nations at the hands of white settlers back in those days. So Lieutenant James DeFries Mann, my ancestor who was so-called Indian fighter, in his letter to his brother, he expresses regret about what was going to happen, what he said that he knew would happen at Wounded Knee if the Sioux resisted 
being forced back on to the reserva reservation if they tried to fight it. I think there was some recognition on his part that there was something that wasn't quite right about this. On the other hand, his letter and his interview revealed a person who didn't view Native Americans as fully human in the same way that he saw his fellow white people. Just the, the language that he used to refer to them, you know, calling the women squaws, the men, the, the young warriors bucks. Anyway, I, I think that, you know, reading his letter and his interview and then my pilgrimage to the reservations were which were the reservations that it was his job to you know confine the indians to left me with a feeling that the whole reservation system well not just a feeling but left me with the conclusion or led me to the conclusion the whole reservation system was based on a racist attitude and that that reservation system was created under when President Andrew Jackson was president with an understanding that these people, these others, could not live with us, the dominant culture of white people, that we couldn't find a way to combine our communities or have our communities live side by side peacefully. And so because uh, the Native Americans were lesser people, were lesser beings uh, than we, the dominant people. We would either kill them or we would confine them to places where we didn't want to live. And, and that was the sort of the operating uh, philosophy of the people who created the reservation system. You know, this was something that in my own life, uh, I hadn't really needed to think about or encounter because where I lived in, in Goshen, Indiana, where Valentine Berkey had his, you know, customers and friends that are pot of modern, there weren't any left by the time I lived there, you know, four generations later. So it was an issue I never really, you know, personally encountered until my mom wrote this article for the Goshen News you know, it just struck me what an interesting dynamic these two ancestors of ours with these very different relationships to Native Americans. And that piqued my curiosity to dig into it deeper and actually go and see where Lieutenant Mann had fought and died and what the living situation for the people uh, on the Pine Ridge and Rosebud reservations were like now, and I was shocked to see the living conditions on those reservations. Say more about that, Jeff. What did you see on the reservation in modern day times? What was so shocking to you? What I saw was rural poverty at the worst level in our country. I'd seen uh, rural poverty before. I'd seen rural white poverty, rural African-American poverty, but I, I really had not seen poverty at the level where no running water, no regular septic sewer service, unpaved roads, just, you know, people in one sense living in the 21st century and in another sense, living in the 19th century in terms of the lack of all of the sort of infrastructure and modern conveniences that most of us in the United States of America take for granted. And also seeing many people who were ravaged by uh, alcoholism, drug addiction. You know, as, as I explained in, in the book, in terms of the metrics of quality of life, Native Americans as a group score the lowest in every single metric there is, you know, poverty, education, healthcare, mental health, addiction, you name it. 
So on a statistical basis, Native Americans have it the worst. And so I got a glimpse of that. You know, in my case, my family heritage and background is both African American and Native American on both sides of my family, on the Native American side, Cherokee on both my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family. And I am aware that if we dial way back to the days that you're referring to when your ancestors were living, or in my case on the African-American side of the family, dial back to the slave plantations and so on and so forth, decisions that were made about people's lives and opportunities that they had or didn't have affected the people at that time and continue to affect people today. So we know that there are fallouts, if you will, to some of those practices and some of those decisions. And with respect to the Native Americans, I know you have some thoughts about what should be done today, given the disenfranchisement that occurred many years ago and the continuing difficult conditions. Okay, so this is the situation, as you correctly pointed out, the fallout of those decisions that were made for these people and what was done to these people, you know, 150 years ago, I bring a perspective of having done development work with a tribal ethnic group in Nepal called the Basa Rai, who have a lot of similarities with uh, the Sioux Indians that I met in the Dakotas, and similarities in, in terms of their kind of philosophical and, and religious understanding of the world and also the way they traditionally lived. So I've been working with a particular community in Basa to do basic infrastructural development projects. Started um, back in 2007. And my partners in the Basa community and I developed a philosophy with several basic principles on how development of their community should progress. And so that's the perspective that I brought when I looked at, for example, the village of Wounded Knee and what could be done and how it could be done to develop that particular community. And then that approach could be broadened to Native communities uh, throughout the United States, uh, because in terms of development, uh, and a lot of their communities were at the same level of underdevelopment as the Basa Rai were when I first started working with them. And they, the community in Basa had no running water, no electricity, no internet, no cell phone service. They were even at, you know, if you want to look at it this way, a lower level of development than the, the people living in the Rosebud and Pine Ridge reservations because they didn't even have any vehicles, motorized vehicles, vehicles with wheels. They did their plowing behind a water buffalo or hand plows. And so the principles we developed were, number one, we would not do any infrastructural project that was not requested, or the project had to be requested by the local community. So we wouldn't uh, say, you know, you need this, you need running water. If the local community, when because my partners in Nepal are from Basa, they are Basa Rai, uh, some of them now live in Kathmandu, and some... Uh, still live in Basa, but all of their they still all have family in Basa. So when the local community asked us through our NGO in Nepal uh, to do something, then we would respond by the American NGO, our nonprofit, raising the money, providing uh, any expertise that might be needed to do the actual project, but then the local people would own it. So, for example, the first project was a school. 
They, the local people provided all the manual labor. They built the school. We provided funding. They, teachers from their own community who had educational degrees were the first teachers in the community. They created their own school board. And so the, the idea was we would provide what they did not have, which basically was capital, and then it would be their project, their infrastructure. They would own it, they would run it and maintain it, and we would have no control whatsoever over it once the project was completed. And even in the process of building, we would not have any control other than to provide expertise that was requested, like out an, an engineer. And so I thought, you know, looking at just in particular the community of Wounded Knee, wouldn't it be great if there was a foundation like our BASA Foundation that would go to that community and develop that same kind of relationship and would help that community develop itself in whatever way it wanted to lift itself out of this really poverty-stricken state that the people are living in. That's really interesting. So you learned a lot in the Himalayas, didn't go there for that reason and purpose, and yet it connects to something in your own history, and you're living right next door, if you will, to some of these issues, and you wanted to make a difference. So what has it been like to transfer the principles from what you learned in Basa at the in the Himalayas to the United States? How easy or difficult has it been to provide resources that people are asking for and have the local people still have their own control over their options and what happens in their community? And and I have to clarify, I haven't done anything in terms of trying to develop a foundation that would work with indigenous communities here in the United States. I wrote this book laid out what I consider a roadmap that anyone who wanted to pick it up and follow it could. And the other, the the big difference between Nepal and the U.S. is in Nepal, the government historically has either done nothing or very little for the indigenous communities, particularly the tribal ethnic uh, groups that live outside of the Kathmandu Valley. One of the first questions I asked in Basa was, well, you know, why isn't the government provided running water or electricity? And they just kind of laughed and said, well, you know, the government doesn't do that. Well, in the United States, the government does do that. And, of course, one of the strange historical anomalies of the reservation system is that while the government forced the tribal ethnic groups into these reservations, then the government hasn't provided the same kind of infrastructural benefits to them that it's provided to communities outside of the reservation system. And to, on one hand, that's been justified by, well, the reserve, you know, the Native American nations, they want to govern themselves. So they have their tribal councils or their, you know, traditional ways of governing. So, so, you know, we're going to leave them alone so they get to take care of themselves. But just like in Basa, if there's no capital within that community, you can't develop to build a sewer system. It takes money. I mean, you can get people to go out and start digging a hole, you know, digging a trench, but okay, now you need cement. Now you need pipe. You can't just make that with your hands. So the U.S. government, in my view, it should be the primary source of funding for the capital that's needed to develop the Native American communities. And the argument I make in the book 
is that there's a historical and an ethical obligation to do that because it was the United States government forced the Native American tribes into the reservations and forced them into areas in the country that were the least desirable places to live and then didn't, and in many cases promised by treaty to provide funds for community development, for infrastructure development, and then reneged on those treaties. If there wasn't a treaty, you know, it didn't do what seems to me is an ethical obligation to provide those kind of resources. So thank you for clarifying that your book is really more about a blueprint of possibilities, not necessarily anything that you are personally doing at this time. And you believe that one of the big players in the future of doing this, especially on the funding end, would be the U.S. government itself. Who else you know, should be or could be a part of this community development initiative, just like you have partners, for example, in BASA and the community development initiative there in the U.S.? Who makes sense to be part of it in addition to the U.S. government? Yeah, there's an, a number of foundations that are working with Native communities. One of them called Partners with Native Americans, PWNA. In fact, I uh, connected with because somebody within that organization read my book and really liked the blueprint that is offered in the book and actually chose the book to be disseminated among its chapters. So that's the one I'm most familiar with. And I'm Jeff Bezos's ex-wife has this foundation where she's, <laughs> her uh, mission is to give away all of her money before she dies. And of course, she's a multi-billionaire after the divorce with Jeff Bezos. And she's partnered with some Native uh, communities and has followed, has implemented or employed that same philosophy of i'll provide the capital but it's your project you know i will not tell you how to do it i will not you know try to control it it's left up to the local community to use the funds and to develop build maintain and then own whatever that infrastructural development is you know, it's really interesting to hear that there are people who are interested in the partnership and making it happen and doing something that some people might call a form of reparations, if you will, because of the fact that these lands and homes and places and livelihoods were taken from people who were already here and were already inhabiting the land. Members of many Native nations today contend that Atrocities still continue with the disruption of, let's say, burial grounds, other sacred lands for the purpose of advancing U.S. interests in oil pipelines, highways, mining, and other actions that prioritize commerce over people. What is your view about that? Well, I agree that's still going on, that on the one hand, the government said, okay, this is your land, it's your reservation. And then there have been instances where pipelines, I mean, you know, the most famous is the XL pipeline that went across various uh, tribal lands and at least in the, among the local people uh, threatened their water, you know, not just was sort of a violation of their, their right to uh, own and control the land, but also an oil spill could threaten their water source. So, and uh, we've seen in the media instances of where uh, museums um, have had Native American relics and skeletons, artifacts that have been kept for you know years and years and years. And now there's a movement to and actually federal law about returning the remains of uh, bodies and artifacts to the rightful tribal 
the rival tribes. And then, of course, in another sort of black spot on our history that's come to light uh, recently is the Native American schools, the boarding schools where Native children were often forcibly taken or were taken under false pretenses from their families and their uh, tribal lands and put into these boarding schools, which turned out to be, uh, to some extent, forced labor camps or schools that were going to teach you the most basic skills would, wouldn't you know, would not offer you the education that would lead to white-collar employment. It's recent history. It isn't just ancient history. And the effects of both the ancient and the recent history on actual people uh, is still, you know, impactful. And it's like slavery. You know, historically, the two great sins of America are slavery and the genocide against Native Americans. And so are we going to recognize those sins? Are we going to look at them with our eyes open and be honest about what happened? And then what are we going to do about it? And I think that's a very good question in, in terms of reflection about these issues and also what's next. And as you were talking about how these services, whether it be sewer services or whatever, were not offered and were not planned in the reservation lands. It reminded me on the African-American side of this whole concept of separate but equal, and it was never, ever equal. Separate facilities, just nobody cares to take care of the facilities where, let's say, it's just African-American children and not anybody else who's participating, historically that's been the case in terms of those who had the financial resources to make a difference and so on. So there are some similarities in that respect in terms of how things are happening or how things are going down. So some people would say that there's still a continuing, what I would call, lack of respect and a lack of appreciation for the Native ways of life, that that's ongoing. So what is the remedy going forward, and is peaceful coexistence even possible in the face of potentially very different value systems? Yeah, it's a really interesting cultural and sort of pop cultural development in terms of the changing attitude of uh, the dominant culture towards Native Americans. Because, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, the cowboy movies, you know, the, the Indians were always the bad guys, the cowboys were the good guys, U.S. cavalry were the good guys, the Indians the bad guys. And then in the 70s, things began to change. And there were movies like Little Big Man was probably one of the most important ones that started showing... Native Americans in a positive light and showing an interest in and a real respect for their culture, for their philosophical and religious practices and attitudes. And it actually became kind of cool to emulate Native Americans. In fact, when I was in high school, I wore that vest a few times to like parties or dances because it looked cool and which the vest i donated to the uh, goshen historical society so it's now part of an exhibit in the historical museum about the local the relationship in that area with native american tribes primarily the potawatomi but anyway the and so you know most recently you've seen this play out in terms of a growing respect with language, words, uh, redskin being the most common one. My high school mascot was the redskin. My team was the Goshen Redskins. And I was a redskin letter winner. <laughs> and in, let's see, 2013, 2014, somewhere around there, the school board voted to change the name to the Red Hawks. And the reason was the 
local community had finally, the consciousness had evolved to recognize that redskins is a pejorative word. And, you know, most recently we saw that with the Washington football team, which is now the commanders. And we've seen it in all sorts of examples. Eskimo pie is no longer Eskimo pie because it turns out, I mean, I didn't know this, but that Eskimo is considered a pejorative term by the native people in Alaska and Yukon. And there's you know, several tribes up there. And they, if you're going to refer to them, they want to be referred to by their tribal names or indigenous people or Native Americans or whatever. But the American culture has really, its consciousness has been slowly raised over the last few decades. And, you know, I think that's a, it's a really good development because, you know, going back to what was underlying your question is that respect is an important aspect of how do people live together when there are differences. I mean, it's one thing to do economic and infrastructure development, and that's very important. But it's another thing to recognize if we're going to be a nation and even though Native Americans, you know, have their own nations, they are still within the umbrella of the United States of America. How are we going to be a community just as the, you know, very fraught, strifle relations between black communities and white communities and you know, going through slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights movement, so forth. This is a struggle that... <laughs> America has had, how do we exist as a nation, as a community with these different communities, with our differences, and respect is a fundamental aspect of that. If, because if we don't have respect, then we have Jim Crow. We have separate but equal, which is not equal. So... Some things have shifted such that people are starting to recognize what it really means to respect others and to appreciate cultures and so on and so forth. And yet, as we also have been saying, some of the challenges are still going on in terms of pipelines, highways, and so on, going through native lands and boarding schools and all this sort of thing we've talked about. What needs to happen? What else needs to occur? And how might that be facilitated with the U.S. government? Under the Biden administration actually took a major step in that direction. When the big trillion-dollar infrastructure bill was passed a couple of years ago, there was over $32 billion allocated to Native American community development. It's the biggest expenditure in uh, U.S. history devoted to Native American community development. And another thing that happened is Deb Holland, who is a Pueblo Indian, was appointed Secretary of the Interior, which that department oversees the Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA, which deals directly between the U.S. government and tribes and nations. So she's the first Native American who's been in charge of the Department of the Interior. And she has launched a number of uh, initiatives that are intended to address some of the historical issues that we've mentioned, like the schools, return of remains, also the shockingly high murder rate of Native American women. But the $32 billion is allocated in a, a number of ways. There's about 12 or, or more funding initiatives or directives where this money is supposed to go. And much of it will be under the control of Native community governance. Not all of it will be. 
uh, a lot of it will still be controlled by either BIA or Department of the Interior or other government agencies. But a fair amount of it is going to be used in the way that my blueprint suggests, because it's it's really important that the local people have control, although with proper oversight uh, and accounting, because if it's not yours, if it's the government comes in or even a foundation with, you know, uh, very good intentions comes in, builds something and has control over it, it's not going to, it will not have the same respect. It will not have the same connectedness to your community as if it's yours. You know, like people take pride in their local school, you know, school pride. And, and so if your school is actually not really your school, you don't have to feel that same connection to it. Well, you might not feel a great deal of pride in your sewer system. Like, Hey, that's my sewer system. Still that it's owned and run and maintained by local people you know, you can talk to, you can complain to, or you can congratulate, whatever. That That's an important aspect of community. And so I, I'm glad that the government has recognized that aspect of community development. In terms of the actual dollars, $32 billion sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But if you think, think of it in this terms, there's just a little over 5 million Native Americans, and that includes people who are mixed, like you, partially by heritage Native American, but not 100%. There's less than two and a half, like 2.3, something like that, million who identify themselves as fully Native American. Okay. Even if you go with the 5 million, you take that 32 billion, that comes out about $8,000 per person. And think, well, that's a lot of money. It is. But then let's think about what does a college education cost? The average college education in the United States in 2020 cost over $37,000 per year. So $8,000 won't even get one Native American one year in college. It's on the one hand, it is historically a lot of money and it can do a lot of good. On the other hand, if you would think of it in terms of reparations per person, it isn't very much. You know this because we talked about it before. I am not an advocate of reparations to individuals i am an advocate of community development and that's partly due to the historical and ethical obligation that i think our our government our united states of america owes to communities that were not treated properly and so i think more money is needed more capital is needed to develop the underdeveloped Native American communities, and I think the very same thing for African American communities, and especially in certain cities, and I even think in some uh, rural white communities, the same is true. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned African Americans because I was going to bring that up next because clearly there was a tremendous amount of harm from slavery, and the people who were enslaved for the most part weren't living here. There are some exceptions <laughs> in terms of what happened. And so your whole premise is that communities that have been harmed still need to be developed at this point, not just the Native American communities, African-American, poor white communities, or whatever it may be that requires this community development. So we know that that's challenging. That's going to be hard. If you think about the similarities and differences between Native Americans and African Americans, just briefly, what are some of the differences or challenges there that make it maybe a different proposition for African Americans versus Native Americans? I think that in, in terms of populations, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I 
think it's correct that African-American communities that need the, the most development funds are in urban areas, which is not to say that there aren't African-American, rural African-American communities that also need community development. But, you know, development in an urban area is different. It faces, faces challenges that are different than a rural village. And my model is based on my experience of working with a rural community. So does that translate perfectly to an urban community? I think it probably does in the sense that whether we're talking about a neighborhood in a big city or we're talking about a village up in the Himalayas, if you identify as a community, then having control over the schools, the, your, the basic infrastructure and economic development is an important aspect of that. And I think that's really been missing in how we've dealt with urban development. I think in some places, there has been real attention paid to the local community and local voices have been heard. But I think way too often, either the state or the federal or even a big city government comes in, so, okay, this is what we're going to do for you. And it's basically in another way of this is what we're going to do to you. The, the worst example was housing and urban development, the housing projects where you tore down long existing African-American neighborhoods where people were mostly living in individual housing units, houses, tore them down, built up big towers, forced people into those towers, ran, you know, interstate highways through those neighborhoods, basically destroyed established neighborhoods out of this vision for what we're going to do to improve the area. And of course, it had exactly the opposite effect. Yes. So as we're sort of hastening to the close of our time together, when you think about corporations, corporations are increasingly embracing diversity-related agendas, and yet some corporations are still part of the problem of running the pipelines and everything else that the Native communities are concerned about. How can corporations even be part of the solution moving forward? You know, the, the whole ESG movement, I know it's controversial in some minds because, you know, some people think all business should be concerned about is profit. I think the ESG movement, if, if viewed properly, is a really positive development because I think a good business pays attention to its customers, to the community where it does business to the environment in which the business exists, to be sensitive to having a diverse board, having diverse management, and paying attention to the effect on the environment your business has, and to the relations with local communities that you do business with. To me, it, it just makes sense. It's almost like a no-brainer. Why did this have to become a sort of movement is controversial in some people's minds, but it's basically about m making companies more sensitive to diversity, to environmental concerns. And the G, as I recall, is governance, but it's about, you know, considering there are stakeholders in your business beyond just your shareholders. Absolutely. And I think if, um, businesses do consider the word stakeholder more broadly. And even in some of the olden days, big corporations setting up in blighted communities, understanding that to some extent, working with the local people who live there to elevate them, even as the corporation is also elevating. So there's been some of it that's been done in the past. It just may not be as broad reaching as it could be or as sustained maybe as it could be. So, Jeff, thank you for sharing all of this. How can people reach you and get a hold of your books? Because you have uh, numerous books. 
my website is my full name, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Raisley, R-A-S-L-E-Y. And there's a link to my email. So happy to have anybody that wants to contact me directly through email via the website. Excellent. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you for being here and weighing in on this very difficult topic. It's not an easy one to talk to, and there aren't any easy solutions. And thank you for sharing what you've learned in, from the BASA community in the Himalayas and what we can possibly use here in the U.S. as well. Well, thank you for very much for having me again. It's always a delight to talk to you, Dr. Karen. You're an engaging person and your questions, even when they put me on the spot, are fun to try to respond to. And, and I just appreciate our friendship and hope I'll see you again. Likewise, I very much appreciate our friendship and these stimulating conversations and hope the audience does as well. So we will close today with a reading from Matthew, the 25th chapter, and I'm going to start with verse 33, I believe. So this is uh, talking about Jesus and what he's going to do, and it says, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And he goes on to give the reverse example to the extent they didn't do these things. They didn't do it for God himself. And so I think the lesson I want us to remember is how we treat one another. God is paying attention to it because every one of us down here are beloved of God. We are part of his creation. And if you mistreat those that God loves, God will not be pleased with you, so we have an obligation for sure to express love and caring for our fellow human beings. So go out and love somebody today. Thank you. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.